Well, turn with me again this morning to the great letter to the Hebrews in chapter 10 as we continue to study this wonderful letter, to, letter together today in verses 5 through 10 of that chapter. We've talked about it before, but similarly to the way that a fish doesn't know that he's wet, we have no idea how thoroughly our human limitations have shaped the way we think about life. As you know, we are inherently finite, and as finite sinful creatures living in a fallen world, we have had to change our standards of success since perfection is never a real option for us. For example, in the area of sports, I think this becomes really clear. I enjoy, as maybe some of you do, watching uh, the Masters, the, the golf tournament, the Masters, when it happens every year. And a few years ago, when my kids were much smaller, I was watching the Masters on TV, and Tiger Woods comes on the screen. And so I said, kids, kids, come here. This, this guy on the screen right now is, is probably the best golfer to ever live. I want you to see him. Just watch him play for just a moment. And so they all gather around the TV, excited to see this, the best golfer ever. And Tiger's probably 200 yards out from the pin and he hits this high lofty shot and it lands softly on the green and dribbles up about two feet from the hole. And I turn around excited to, to, to my kids to say, did you see that? And my daughter says, well, he missed. <laughs> and the more I thought about it, I said, well, he did miss. The goal of golf is to get it in the hole. And he got, she said, this is the best golfer in the world? And he missed. You think about it from another angle. Steve Kerr currently holds the all-time NBA record for having the best three-point shooting percentage over the course of a career. I think he played something like 16 years. That means that in his career, he made a higher percentage of his three-point shots than any other player in the history of NBA. I mean, think about that. That's an astonishing accomplishment. Guess what his percentage was, his three-point percentage? 45.4%. Now, if you play basketball and you know the sport, you're blown away by that. That's an amazing accomplishment to shoot at that high of a level. But if you're like the rest of us that don't really play basketball, the first thought that comes to my mind is that means he missed 54.6% of his shots from the three-point line which means that the most accurate three-point shooter in the NBA history was more likely to miss a three-point shot than he was to make it. Now, when it comes to sports, the consequence of lowering our standards for achievement is really not that consequential. But the problem is the fact that as human beings, we instinctively adopt a similar mentality when it comes to our thoughts about righteousness and sin. If you ask a person on the street if they believe that they're going to heaven when they die, they will almost universally say what? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then if you ask them why they believe that's true, they will almost universally say because I'm what? I'm a good person, I'm a good guy. Now, how can a sinful human being claim to be good with a straight face? It's because we all instinctively apply a self-imposed lesser standard of righteousness to ourselves. We lower the bar by looking at others around us 
And we judge ourselves by ourselves. We look at murderers and we look at Hitler and we look at that mean relative that no one wants to come to Thanksgiving and we say, hey, I'm not that bad. I'm not like that guy. But the author of Hebrews won't let us make that mistake. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, he's reminding us that God's standard for entering into his presence, God's standard for entering into heaven is absolute perfection. Absolute, perfect, moral perfection. And yet none of us meet that standard. So what do we do? Are we hopeless? Is there any hope for us this morning? Well, in our passage today, the author of Hebrews reminds us that what was impossible, what is impossible for us, God has done in and through his son, Jesus Christ. He's reminding us, of course, over and over again of the superiority of Christ. He won't let us take our eyes off of Christ, and we're thankful for it. We're in this long section. This is the most extended section in Hebrews as far as one singular argument. It began all the way back in chapter 8. We will be in it today and next week and close out this section that runs through chapter 10, verse 18. It's a long argument really centered on the fact that Jesus has a superior covenant and a superior sacrifice. Here's the theme we've been unpacking. Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. Now, last week we began chapter 10. What we saw there is there are two major closing arguments. I realize there's repetition here. That's on purpose. The author is bringing us back now. He's summarizing all the things that we've learned so far over the last two chapters, bringing it to a head, to a close with these closing arguments. Let's look at the verses we read last week, and then we'll look at our passage today. This is Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Now there we saw the first of this closing arguments. Argument number one is the inadequacy of the old covenant sacrifices, verses one to four. The argument he's making there is that those old covenant sacrifices could not provide eternal perfection, which of course is what we have to have. And he proved that with two very simple and yet profound arguments. Proof number one, That offering under the old covenant was continual. Remember, it was year by year. It had to keep happening because it never fully accomplished the purpose of removing the full debt of sin. Proof number two, the sacrifice itself was inadequate. That is, the content of what was being sacrificed was inadequate. Animal sacrifices cannot substitute eternally for an image bearer of God. In order for a sacrifice to be made, we have to have an appropriate sacrifice sacrifice. A perfect image bearer is required to substitute for another image bearer. Now with that lead up in verses one to four, 
we really get to where the author wants to get. He, he never stays too long on the negative because what he really wants us to be focused on is Christ. He wants us to see Christ over and over again. And so we come now to argument number two, the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. They had the inadequacy of the old sacrifices, now the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ. Let's read our passage today, verses five to 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now this is a, at times a somewhat complicated text, but it is a beautiful description as we'll see of the glory of the value of the sacrifice of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ for us on the cross. Now remember, we have to always go back to the original audience. We can't get too far away in our minds from the people reading this letter for the first time. The fact that they were likely composed primarily of Jewish Christians. So they're struggling with the temptation we probably don't struggle with this morning. They're struggling with this idea that reminiscing about the law, that the law and the old sacrifices still have something to offer or maybe those were the good old days or whatever it is. They're looking back at the old covenant with longing eyes. Now, as Christians living 2,000 years after Christ, hopefully you don't struggle with that. It probably never even crossed your mind. We never lived under the law, we never lived under the old covenant and we don't really care to do so. But don't forget that out of the, the 66 books in the scriptures, more than half of them, 39, are written to people living under the old covenant. And so for us to understand the Bible as a whole, we have to understand the argument of Hebrews. We have to understand how important the old covenant sacrifices really were to the Jewish people and what they represented in order for us, even in the new covenant, to really understand the value of what we can so easily take for granted in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he has made so as we dive in again to the same topic, it's tempting for us perhaps to say, you know, uh, we get it, okay? Christ, is sac his sacrifice is better than the old covenant. Can we move on to something else? And the author says, no, not yet, not yet, because you still need to hear it again. And can we just say, is there anything better to preach week in and week out than the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the value of the substitution that he made for us. And that's what the author wants us to hear over and over again. He's going to apply it to us here in a couple of weeks. But for now, he just wants us to soak for two more weeks on this great theme. 
But he also understands as a teacher, just as I understand, if I ever teach anything, I'm hoping that you're going to be a Berean. You're going to test what I say against the scriptures because I have no authority outside of what the Bible says. The author of Hebrews knows that as well. So he's just made a huge statement. The old covenant sacrifices were inadequate. Now, if you say something like that, you better back it up, right? And that's what he does. He's going to take us to an Old Testament passage that proves that what he's just said is not novel, it's not new, and he didn't make it up. In fact, it's been sitting there in Scripture all along. And so we're going to study an Old Testament passage of Scripture this morning from Psalm 40, the psalm that we started our service with today. Now, the argument in verses 5 to 10 really have three layers, like an onion. The first layer we'll call the text, the passage itself, the proof He's just going to really quote for us the Old Testament passage. Then he's going to explain it briefly and apply the meaning. Those are the three basic layers. So layer number one is the text itself in verses five to seven. Now, probably in your Bible, that text looks different. It's probably set off differently. The font is differently, uh, written differently. That's because it's a direct quote from Psalm 40. He begins, though, in verse 5 with the word, therefore. Obviously, he's going to now make an argument from what he said last time. The last thing he said is it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says. Now, the pronoun he is probably, hopefully, capitalized in your Bible. It's capitalized because it is rightly here Uh, listed as a reference to Christ. He here is Christ. So when he, when Christ comes into the world, that's a reference to his incarnation. When he, the God, becomes the God man, he says something. He comes speaking. Now understand when the the author writes this in verse five, he's not claiming that this is a quote that Jesus actually made during his earthly ministry. We don't have that anywhere in the New Testament that Jesus stated this of himself. Instead, the author's claiming that Psalm 40, a portion of Psalm 40, verses six to eight to be specific, have actually been about the Messiah all along that they should always have been understood as messianic in their meaning. So he comes then speaking. What is it that he spoke specifically through David? David's the author, the human author of Psalm 40. What is it that Jesus spoke through David that applied to him when he came into the world? Well, specifically, as I said, he's just gonna quote from us from verses six to eight. And the reason he quotes from verses six to eight is the other material in Psalm 40 that brackets verses six to eight clearly refers to David. But the things he says in verses six to eight go beyond him. Remember at the end of Psalm 40, David begins to talk about his iniquities and his iniquities are more than the hairs of his head. We read that this morning. Obviously that doesn't apply to Christ. Christ had no iniquities. But in these verses, in verses 6 to 8, that really were a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, he talks about this person who is going to come and perfectly obey, have perfect obedience, which can't be David, because in the same psalm, David admits that he's a sinner. And so the author 
brings our attention to Psalm 40, verses six to eight, and he's gonna quote those to us from the Septuagint version. Remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was the common Bible of the day. It was the Bible that Jesus most often quotes from. It's the, it would have been the common scripture, and it's certainly the common scripture quoted in Hebrews. Throughout Hebrews, he quotes the version from the Septuagint. Now, I bring that up because sometimes, as happens in English translations, there are minor differences within translations. It's not a mistake in the manuscripts themselves. But here, there is a, a difference in the translation here of the Septuagint and the Hebrew version, which we have in our Bible in the English. And so when we get there, I'm gonna explain that. But if you're reading ahead and noticing some differences, I don't want you to be thrown off by that. We'll explain those as we come to them. But for now, I just want you to read again with that context in mind, the actual quote. Here's the quote as it appears in Hebrews chapter 10, verses five to seven. This is the Septuagint version of Psalm 46 to eight. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, here's the quote, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. Now, we're gonna break this into its parts and dissect it together, but I first want you to see the big picture. The big picture can be seen in the fact that this is a great example of Hebrew parallelism. Remember, we've talked about this before. Hebrew poetry is the rhyming of truth. It's not the rhyming of the words. So there's repetition of the same truth in two slightly different ways. That's what happens here. There are two statements made followed by two responses. But both of them make the same point. Really, it's just one point that's being made that we'll highlight together, only one truth. Now, I've organized them a little bit differently, and I think I put this on the screen for you, but I may not have. What I've done is if I just read this for you um, and I take out the responses, you can see there are two statements made about sacrifices and there are two responses to those statements. Look back at the text again. I'm gonna skip over uh, the, the middle line so you can just see what he says about sacrifices. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. He says the same thing two different ways. The responses are the same thing. Next he says, but a body you have prepared for me. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Those are the responses to the mention of sacrifices, and all of this makes one overarching point. Now, I want you to just focus on, first of all, what is he saying about sacrifices? And when I say, what is he saying? Ultimately, it's Christ speaking here. The author says he's quoting directly from Christ who was speaking through the inspired pen of David when he wrote Psalm 40. So Jesus is saying this, not the author of Hebrews. What is it Jesus says about sacrifices in Psalm 40? He says, sacrifice and offering you, that is God the Father, have not desired. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. 
Now, if you know the Old Testament at all, that should sound a little bit strange. If you're a Jew living certainly at the time of David, when David wrote that, and even a Jew living at the time that Hebrews is written, this should be really confusing. Because there are a variety of different words here. Notice how many different ways he says sacrifice. He says the word sacrifice, the word offering, the word uh, whole burnt offering, and then sacrifice for sin. Four different descriptions of sacrifices, all of them different terms. The idea is it's a summarization of all the different sacrifices required in the law. The sum total of the sacrificial system Jesus says through the pen of David, God, you have not desired. You take no pleasure in those sacrifices. None of them? I mean, really, holistically, none of those sacrifices? Why does Jesus say through the pen of David that God the Father has not desired sacrifices and offerings? After all, God gave the law to Moses. We've studied that. We know that that's true. Well, while God himself gave the law to the people and it's he who prescribed the sacrificial system, God also carefully explained throughout the Old Testament that sacrifices in and of themselves are not what he desires. Instead, God has consistently said what he truly desires from the beginning he desired a people, truly holy a people who genuinely loved him, a people who worshiped him from the heart. The Old Testament scriptures testify to this. Let me just show you in a few places. 1 Samuel 15, 22, you remember Saul uh, is told to go and to destroy a people completely, including their king, and to bring back no spoils, but he brings back some of the best of the animals. And Samuel, the prophet, is incensed, rightly, at this disobedience. And here in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In Psalm 51, as David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba, he says this, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then as we come to the end of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament in Micah, what does Micah say? Micah 6, verses 6 to 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. By the time that Micah particularly wrote those words, the sacrificial system for many, if not most of the people of Israel had become a formality. It was ritual. The people treated it as a ritual that they came and they outwardly did before the Lord without really humbling their hearts. And the Lord said enough. 
enough of this. God routinely rejected heartless worship that didn't bear the fruit of repentance. We see it all the way through. I didn't quote from Malachi, I mentioned Micah, but even on into Malachi, the same things are true. What I want you to see before we move on is that the same thing is true of God today. God's equally displeased with heartless worship under the new covenant. We can be guilty of the same type of sin if we claim to believe and to be beneficiaries of the, the, the sacrifice of Christ while having hard hearts and living lives of sinful rebellion. God takes no pleasure, for example, in church attendance and financial gifts and hours of service if those are not driven by a genuine heart of love for him. This is one of the reasons we're told to examine ourselves before taking of the Lord's table. Why is it such a big deal to examine your heart before you take of communion? It's the same principle. Communion is the reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. And to take of that reminder while living in a pattern of rebellion is to make a mockery of what Christ has done. So before we move forward, ask yourself, are my outward expressions of worship an expression of my true heart? Or are they just an attempt to cover up my true heart from everyone else? But here, the author quotes Psalm 40 to reveal that it was not just heartless worship that was inadequate in God's sight, it was the sacrifice itself that was inadequate. So understand, God took no pleasure in the old covenant sacrifices for two primary reasons. Number one, they were often given with, without a genuine heart of repentance. And number two, animal sacrifices are incapable of atoning for sin, as we saw last week. Now, don't miss the fact that Jesus is saying this through David hundreds of years before his incarnation, long before the book of Hebrews is written. Not only that, he's teaching us that through his incarnation, Jesus would solve the problem. Jesus would be what the law could not, what those sacrifices could not. Jesus would do what no sacrificial system could ever do. He turned God's displeasure into perfect eternal satisfaction. That brings us to the two responses. We looked at the two statements about sacrifices. What are the two responses that Jesus gives there in Psalm 40 through David? The first one is the phrase, but a body you have prepared for me. This is the middle of verse five. But a body you have prepared for me. Now this is the statement I was mentioning earlier that differs slightly from the Septuagint version that's, that's in our English Bible. Um, or the, the, it differs from the Hebrew version that's in our English Bible. So this is a Septuagint version here in Hebrews. We have the Hebrew version in our English Bible. So Psalm 40, verse six in your Bible, in your English Bible says something like this. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. My ears you have opened. And here we have, but a body you have prepared for me. Now don't be thrown off by that. The difference actually is not nearly as great as it might initially seem on the surface. Uh, the, the actual Hebrew phrase, if you literally translate it, in fact, there's probably a marginal note in your Bible for the word 
um, regarding your ears. Literally, it says, ears you have dug from me. And the, the, the Septuagint translators took that to, ref, as an, to refer to an act of creation, of creating the human body. The idea is in digging ears, you create obe- an obedience. The idea is obedience. A person who, who hears and responds to the word of God in obedience. The, the author is saying, you, you've given me a physical body fit for obedience is the interpretation. And that's why it's translated that way. Really, whether you translate it as ears or body, the point is the same. This person who is Christ was going to receive a physical body fit for obedience. Sacrifices you have not desired, but you've prepared a body for me that's going to be able to obey, to live a a real life of perfect obedience. And we see that because he explains it in the second response. The second thing that Jesus replies to God's dissatisfaction over sacrifices comes here in verse seven. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. Literally, the statement, just to cut out everything in between, he says, I have come to do your will, is what he says. So you've made a body for me so that I can come and do your will, is what Jesus is saying. Because you didn't desire sacrifice, I will come and I will do your will. To shorten it, that's what he's saying. And he says, these things are written about me. He's referring to the other prophecies about Christ already in the scriptures. It's already written of me that I will come and do this, Jesus says. Now here comes the explanation. I'm not gonna go into the explanation deeply because the author does it himself. Let's listen to the explanation that the author gives us in Hebrews. This is layer number two, verses eight and nine, the explanation. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. Now this is his emphasis. So he makes the quote first. Now he says, here's the part of the quote I want you to focus on. And it's this last line. First he says, you haven't desired sacrifices. Then he says, I have come to do your will. This is the key phrase. I have come to do your will. And then he gives his interpretation of why that's important at the end of verse nine. He says, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. That is Jesus. Jesus takes away the first in order to establish the second. What is he talking about? He takes away these old covenant sacrifices with which God was not pleased And he comes and does the will of God and replaces it with the real sacrifice that God is pleased with. This is the proof of Psalm 40 that the author is getting at. Jesus came to do the true will of God and set aside the old covenant sacrifices. And don't miss this, he set it under the reign of David hundreds of years ago. 
Now you see the emphasis. The, the author is saying, listen, I'm not making this up. This is not some novel idea that I came up with. Jesus said this through the pen of David hundreds of years ago here in Psalm 40. Jesus told us ahead of time what he was going to do and why he was going to do it before it ever happened. And that brings us to the grand finale. This is the part of the, of the passage where your blood should begin to boil in the right way, where you, you should begin to feel overwhelmed at the passionate love of God for you in Christ. This is layer number three, the application in verse 10. It's short and simple and yet incredibly, eternally profound. By this will, we have been sanctified. By this will, we have been sanctified. This is the declaration we've been waiting for that we've been building up to until this point. Last week, the author explained in great detail that under the old covenant, those sacrifices were not capable of making you perfect. But now he's just said that through the accomplishment of this will, you have been sanctified. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be sanctified in this sense? Well, the word itself means to be set apart. The word sanctified is used to mean set apart. It's used in the Old Testament sometimes of objects that are sanctified unto holy use, set apart to be used for holy things. And it's used of people who are set apart by God and declared to be holy. Now, we talk about sanctification in two different ways, typically as New Testament Christians. These are just my definitions. There are better technical definitions out there, I'm sure. But just to be clear, there is progressive sanctification, which is the most common way we use the word sanctified. It is being made progressively holy throughout our temporal lives as a Christian. Each day, the Lord's progressingly making you holy as you grow in Christ. The other way the scripture uses the term sanctification refers to what we call positional sanctification. And that's what the term means here. This is being set apart as holy in conjunction with our justification based on the righteousness of Christ credited to us. It, it is a way of saying it's so certain that we will one day be glorified that it's as if it's already happened. That's what positional sanctification is. And that's what it means here. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we said last week, not just that you are forgiven of your sins, but he has declared based on the righteousness of Christ, you are by faith and grace alone perfect because his perfection's credited to you. Now that's what it means when he says, by this will, you have been sanctified. You've been made perfect. And this is incredible. Do you see how this fits together in, in context? He literally says, if you look back at verse one, at the end of verse one, those sacrifices can't make perfect those who draw near and then he says at the end of verse 10, or beginning of verse 10, you have been sanctified. You have been made perfect. It has happened to you, not through those sacrifices, but through the sacrifice that's prophesied here in Psalm 40. Now, what is this will? By this will, you have been sanctified. Well, he explains it to us 
here at the end of verse 10. But let me just remind you, last week in verses 1 to 4, what were the two ways that the Old Testament sacrifices were said to be inadequate? Two reasons. One, they were continual. And two, the content of the sacrifice itself was inadequate, right? He's going to follow that same line of thinking, and he's going to show us that Christ meets the bar on both points. Number one, Christ's sacrifice is superior in content because it is himself. Look at verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. He offered his own body. This is, this is the idea, and he's, he's playing off of the word body that's there in the quote from Psalm 40, but he's saying that Jesus offered himself a perfect image bearer, not an animal, but an image bearer of God, a human being, the God-man to be sure, but fully human, offering himself for us. And what is it that God said continually in the Old Testament that he desired more than sacrifice? Was obedience, right? Well, what do we have in Jesus? Perfect, perfect, spotless obedience. And in that obedience included him going to the cross. Sacrifice was part of the perfect obedience that Jesus demonstrated in his earthly life. So that in one person, we have the complete fulfillment of what God required. We have the perfect life that God said he desires more than sacrifice. And then we have that perfect life offered as the sacrifice so that sin can truly be paid for. So when the author says, by this will, you have been sanctified, he means the will of God for his son to come and accomplish perfect obedience and perfect sacrifice on our behalf. By that will, you have been sanctified. Remember, Jesus made it clear throughout his earthly ministry that his mission was to carry out the will of the Father. He says it over and over again. I have come to do the Father's will. A good example would be John 6. And also, as he says that, he clarifies that he understands the will of God for him is to die as a sacrifice for sins. John 6, 37 and 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one's taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And then Matthew 26, 39, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Christian, it is by this will 
the will of the Father to send his son to live a perfect life and offer it for you that you have been sanctified. This will. Notice that verb, you have been sanctified. It's in the perfect tense. If that doesn't mean anything to you, let me explain. The perfect tense, past tense, past action with ongoing ramifications. It's done and yet you're still experiencing the ramifications of it. You have been sanctified. It's definitive. It cannot change. There will never be, if you're truly in Christ, there will never be a day that you wake up and he will change his mind about you. You have been sanctified, set apart as holy unto God, and he will complete what he began. This is the good news of the gospel. But not only is the content of Christ's sacrifice superior, but he meets the other qualification as well because his sacrifice is effective where the old sacrifices were ineffective. And this is the end of verse 10. It's superior in effectiveness because how does the verse end? Once for all. You've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Whereas those sacrifices of the day of atonement had to be annual, had to be continual, not with Christ. Because the sacrifice was adequate, it happened once in human history and it applies to every believer for all time, never to be repeated. Jesus knew full well on the cross that he had accomplished every single detail of God's plan of redemption. And he says as much in John 19, this from the cross, verses 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, knowing that all things had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture said, I'm thirsty. There was one more that needed to be done. And so before he gives up his spirit, he says, I'm thirsty so that he can fulfill the prophecy a jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. He drinks. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and listen to this, and gave up his spirit. Remember what he said? No one takes it from me. I lay it down. They nailed him to the cross, but he was fully aware throughout the whole process to, and it was not until the point that he knew every single prophecy has been fulfilled. I've done it. I've accomplished the plan of redemption that God laid out before he, he, he made the world. Then he said, it's done. I've done it. I've taken the wrath of the father upon myself. And therefore he chose willingly to give up his spirit. He accomplished the will of the father down to the last detail, and in that way fulfilled what he said through David in Psalm 40. I have come to do your will. And if you're in Christ this morning, then the Holy Spirit says to you through the inspired letter to the Hebrews, by this will, you have been sanctified. You have, I have. How can we possibly quantify the value of our salvation in Christ? What would we compare it to that would do it justice? And what kind of lives should we now live in light of such things? 
These are the questions we should be asking. Let me give you just a few of the answers, and I hope it will spur you on to come up with more answers to that question yourself. I'm just gonna give us one statement of application and then fill that out together. Because really, here is how we should all respond to such a text as this. Live as a saint. Live as a saint. This is where this idea comes from. If you have been sanctified, you've been set apart. We are all, therefore, saints in that sense because of what Christ has done for us if we're in Christ. And that's a, that's a truth that must change you. If you are a sanctified, you can't go on living the way you used to live. And it should transform us in a number of areas, really every area, but I'm just gonna mention a short list and I want us to think about them together. It's a simple list, and yet so often we miss the mark in these ways and we need God's help here. But if we really understand that we have been sanctified, set apart unto God, then it should change the way we love, first of all. It's 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. It, this sanctification should come with a, a fervent love for God and a fervent, real love for his people. Let me ask you, do you love God? Do you love him? Do you long to be with him? Do you long for the day when he will split the clouds and come to bring you home? In your daily life, do you love to read his word? Do you long for it? Do you long for free moments throughout the day when you can intentionally bring your mind back to think on him, to think on truth? Do you love to pray because you talk to your God in prayer? Do you love him? Not just do you know you should love him. Do you love God? This is one of the immediate effects conversion should have on a person. Vibrant, real love for God that overflows then into a love for his people and even a love for the lost that they would come to know him. It should affect our gratitude, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it transform gratitude? We live in a thankless world, don't we? A world that knows that God exists but they do not honor him as God or give thanks. Romans 1. But what about you, Christian? Do you actively foster a heart of gratitude towards God by proactively meditating on truth? Do you proactively meditate on his eternal and temporal blessings in your life? I mean, do you really call to mind on purpose the things that God has done for you to, as fertilizer for gratitude in your heart? Or do you consume your mind with all you wish you could change about your life? Christians should be the most grateful people on the planet, amen? If we have a God like this, by this will you have been sanctified, should we not be the most grateful people on the planet? May we foster that, may we stir it up by setting our hearts and our minds on God and what he's done for us. What about hope? Should our sanctification transform our hope? 
if this sanctification, this setting apart of us as God's people is truly settled and done and cannot be undone, is there any other anchor of hope more valuable than that? What great, greater hope-inducing truth is there than the idea that, as the song says, your sins, not in part but the whole, are nailed to the cross and you bear them no more? Does anything else induce hope in the heart more than this? I bear them no more. How unbefitting hopelessness is to the Christian. If you have Christ, you have hope, a real hope, a living hope. And if you find yourself hopeless this morning, you have to ask yourself, have you begun to value something else more than you value Christ and what he's done for you? For the Jews, as we said, they struggle with valuing the law and the old covenant. But what about you? What threatens your supreme value of Christ? probably not the sacrificial system. But that doesn't mean you don't have some affection for something in your life that challenges, rivals your affection for Christ. If you struggle to know what it is that you're most tempted to value more than Christ, just think of it this way. What tempts you towards hopelessness? What tempts you to lack joy? What tempts you to be discontent? when you don't get it. What in your life most makes you feel like giving up? Is it your marriage? Is it the behavior of your children? Is it your salary or your job performance or the lack thereof? Is it the lack of some possession that you really want and others keep getting? What is it that when you encounter that thing, you are tempted to walk away hopeless, lacking joy, struggling to rejoice, and struggling to set your mind on your Savior. And when you answer that question, when you fill in that blank, you will have discovered the thing or things that you are tempted to value more than Christ. Because we are saying, if I just had that, then I could have joy. If I just had that, then I'd be full of hope. And Christ says, I've already given you joy and hope and love in measures that cannot be outdone. You don't need those things to have joy. What about trust? Does a God like this who planned our redemption before we were born and brought us into life and then bought us with his precious blood and applied that to us in time and called us to himself by grace, does a God like that not warrant our trust? So when the clouds of God's providence in your life are dark and you can't see your hand in front of your face, Preach the good news of the gospel to yourself. Speak of Christ to yourself. Remind yourself of why he is so worthy of your unwavering trust. A God this good will not design a trial for your ultimate harm. 
That doesn't mean it won't come through pain, sometimes even physical pain, but a God this good will use every trial, even the worst ones you can imagine, to bring glory to his name and to sanctify you and to build his church. He won't fail to do it. And so we can trust him. Just two more, what about obedience? Shouldn't this concept of eternal sanctification that's been granted to us in Christ affect our obedience? You know, isn't it great that God provides for us what he demands? God said, as we've read in the scripture this morning, that he's always desired obedience more than sacrifice, and yet we find ourselves incapable of offering to him that kind of obedience. And he says, I will fix that problem in two ways. One, I'll send my son, he'll obey on your behalf and offer his life. But then after that, I'm gonna bring conversion to you and fill you with my Holy Spirit, and I'm gonna help you actually begin to walk in obedience in growing measure in your life. He's done it all. And then he said to us, your love for me will be evident to the world by obeying my commandments. Because you joyfully obey my commands, and as the apostle says, Apostle John says, and his commands are not burdensome when we rightly understand them, the world will know you love me. Listen to John 14, 23 to 24. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ, Christian? And does that love show itself in your personal dedication to humble obedience to his word? Finally, this sanctification should affect our understanding of perseverance in the faith. Perseverance, the knowledge that we are sanctified through faith in Jesus Christ ought to give us assurance of our salvation and that God will hold us fast. Do you ever wonder if you're gonna make it? I mean, be honest. Sometimes life gets pretty dark, doesn't it? Sometimes the way just doesn't seem clear and there really is no light at the end of the tunnel. You have no idea where you're at in this trial or if it'll ever end. And in those moments, we can often hear the whisper of our flesh in our minds that says, you can't do this. You can't do this. You're not gonna make it. And our passage this morning teaches us to respond, Christ has already done it. He's already done it. No, I can't do it. If it was dependent on my strength, I would fall on my face. I wouldn't make it. I would abandon my faith. I would abandon and embarrass Christ, but it's not dependent on me. I will persevere in the faith, come what may. I will put one step in front of another, and I will trust that when my legs give way, he'll carry me. He'll carry me by his sufficient grace. He will not abandon me. I don't know how, but I know my God and I will make it because of what he has already done for me. Do you see how this transforms 
our entire life. May we love differently. May we be grateful Christians. May we be hope-filled, trusting our Savior, walking in loving obedience, and may we trust that he will hold us fast. We will persevere to the end because he has done it all. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for such a passage as this, that by this will, we have been sanctified. We pray those words aren't lost on us today. We pray that they show up in ardent Christian living, dedicated to Christ and following him with faithfulness by his strength, based on his work and not our own, not to earn anything from him, but simply to live in obedience because we love him and we're grateful for what he's done for us. Help us, hold us fast, strengthen weary knees this morning who are struggling. And God, help us not to look for contentment in the things of the world, but in our Savior alone. And may we run hard for him until he brings us to himself. We ask in the name of Christ, amen.